0: Hello, hello! Get ready for a journey through time with the Historians Podcast, hosted by myself, Derek Mulligan, and my co-historian Neil Feddersen Hall. We invite you into our virtual living room for weekly fireside chats with world-renowned historians and authors, from ancient history to present day. The Historians covers it all with guests who have lived and experienced the stories they share. Join myself and Neil as we whiz back and forth through time, exploring the truth behind historical events that turn out to be way stranger and more exciting than fiction. So grab a cuppa and get ready to be transported to another time and place. Tune in now to join our history-loving community. Here we go. Well, welcome, historians to another episode. This week's weather update is it's lashing rain in Ireland. Um, we will be speaking with uh, Anthony Lowenstein, who is in Australia, and their winter would be pretty similar to ours, but our summer, should I say, I'll ask him about that now in a, in a second. Um, but Anthony is a writer of many books going back over 20 years. And his latest book is what interests us now. And that's the Palestine Laboratory, um, a very, very interesting reads, certainly for those who may not know too much about uh, Israel and what's happening there in regards to Palestine and, and whatnot. But there, he's written other books as well. The, the last book actually was a little bit of a departure from this, and that was a book about the war on drugs. So uh, yeah, we might touch on that later. And with that, welcome Anthony Lowenstein. You're very welcome to Historians. Thank you so much for having me. I love it. We could not get further apart geographically if we tried. <laughs> that's that's, that's, I know, that's it's that's fantastic. It. Exactly, exactly. Okay, well, maybe just to, just to start, right, for, for those listeners who, I suppose, won't understand the subtleties of Israeli politics, hmm. but let's define anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. That might be a good place to begin. Look,
1: anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism have both become massively politicized in the last decades, but to me, anti-Semitism means simply a hatred of Jews. Someone, a group, a country, I mean, the most extreme example of anti-Semitism, of course, was Nazi Germany, the complete uh, desire by Hitler and the Nazis to obliterate all Jews. Jews somehow were the epitome of evil, And by removing Jews from Germany and Europe, that would somehow cleanse Europe. I mean, it was obviously mad, delusional, horrific. And like many Jews uh, of the 20th century, my family were impacted by that. I mean, most of my family were from Germany and Austria. Most of them were killed in the Holocaust, including in Auschwitz. And the ones who got out in 1939, just before the war started actually, came to pretty much any corner of the world that would take them, so Australia, the US, Canada, et cetera. So anti-Semitism is the hatred of Jews. Obviously, it started long before the Nazis. It continues to this day. In certain parts of the world, I would say anti-Semitism is worsening. Where this gets weaponized and deliberately confused by, I would argue, advocates of Israel is to say that anti-Zionism, which is not the belief in the concept or the justness of a Jewish state. So Zionism itself is an ideology that's been around for pretty much since the late 1800s. It was a belief of European Jews that there was always anti-Semitism. As Jews, we could never be loved and embraced properly within Europe. And the only way that that could change and improve our lot as Jews was to have a Jewish state. Now, of course, there is now a Jewish state in the Middle East, but for the first uh, close to 50 years of the 20th century, it sounds crazy to think of this now, but there were attempts and investigations in having a Jewish state in Argentina, in remote places of Australia. I mean, to think about that now is insane. How that would have worked, God knows. But nonetheless, obviously, Israel was founded in 1948, which we can talk about. But Zionism was initially in the late 1800s a fringe ideology. Most Jews, including my family, did not subscribe to the idea of Zionism because their view was, and again, before the, the Nazis in 1933, yes, there's anti-Semitism in Europe, there always has been, but we are a part of Europe. I mean, my one of my um, family relations fought on the German side in World War I. That gives you a bit of a sense that they were... They saw themselves as German first and maybe Jewish second. Obviously, a lot of those views have now changed, but anti-Zionism is how I describe myself, which essentially is that I don't believe that there is a just cause in a Jewish state where it is now in the Middle East because the only way that can exist is to repress Palestinians who are
0: living in that same area. Yeah, well explained. Now, you know, I suppose your history is what's interested you enough to get interested in what's happening in, in Israel itself. You mentioned 1948, obviously a big moment in history for, for Jewry. And then I suppose Jews or the Jewish state at that time was much more tolerant, um, certainly on foot of the Holocaust. It appeared to be much more tolerant, Correct. It appeared that
1: way, but it was a lie. I mean, there's always a a founding myth of all settler colonial states. Australia, my country, New Zealand, Canada, the US, they claim that we are coming as liberators, we are freeing the land, we are developing this territory in noble ways. I mean, essentially, it's always bullshit. And, yes, Israel was founded three years after the end of the Holocaust, so there was profound and understandably a lot of global sympathy and support for Israel. There was not a lot of support for Arabs or Palestinians, uh, which is partly racism in many Western capitals, but also just the sense that then and now I would argue that there's lots of racism in much of the Western world. But when Israel was founded in 1948, the only way that happened was the ethnic cleansing of three-quarters of a million Palestinians who were forcibly kicked out by Israel to mostly neighbouring states. And what's weird to think about this now, that for the first 20 or so years of Israel's existence, Israel was a massive supporter and the left in the world massively engaged with Israel. They saw Israel as a socialist paradise. You have older Aussies, Americans, Brits, I'm sure Irish, who would say, we went to Israel, we went to the kibbutzes, we went to these areas, this was this amazing noble territory. You were trying to build a fresh new society. It was all bullshit. I'm not saying that those sentiments were not there, they were, but Palestinians were kind of invisibilized. There barely were any Palestinians who were talked about, they were barely seen between 1948 and 1967, which I guess we'll talk about, which really was the turning point in Israeli history, Palestinians were under a form of martial law of sorts in that whole territory. So, yes, it was a cause of the left of sorts, but it was always based on a lie that somehow, and so many Jews then and still now, and I say this obviously as someone Jewish, still subscribe to this idea of It was an empty land that we came and settled. There was no one there, which is exactly what, frankly, the British British said in Australia, what many other societies have said in Canada and New Zealand. It was always a lie. Of course it was always a lie. But some of those other settler colonial states have at least started the conversation about acknowledging that history, not for a second to excuse or, "I'm, I'm from Australia, And Australia is profoundly, how do I put this, um, lacking in readiness to accept and acknowledge a history of what the British did to Indigenous Australians. I mean, not in all circles, of course, it's complicated, but within Israel itself, a nation that just recently turned 75 years old, so a very new nation, really, with some exceptions, and there are, of course, Israeli Jews who are very critical. In general, there's not just... Not an acceptance of the history. There's profound denial and anger if you even talk about it. It's not talked about, really. Um, and if it is talked about, it's justified. We had no choice. Uh, we had to survive. That was three years after the Holocaust. Our entire people were wiped out in the Holocaust. I mean, Israel. I mean, you know, around the world now there are roughly fourteen to fifteen million Jews. I mean, it's a tiny population, of which roughly half is in Israel and half's in the US, roughly. It's literally, I mean, of course, there are Jews in Australia, Ireland, UK, Europe, obviously. But in general, it's remarkable to think most of the Jews in the world are in two countries, really. New, and I sort of laugh and I say basically New York, because they're pretty much all in New York, around New York, and Israel. So it's a remarkable kind of legacy of 20th century that mostly half the Jewish population in the world's in one country the other half are now in the US.
0: And the status quo changed again when you had the Six Day War, and um, which obviously, you know, understandably, they you know, Israel had to had to go to war. Their their borders were being threatened, by uh, an axis of Muslim countries: Egypt, Syria, Jordan, and, and they obviously defeated that pretty quickly. Six days. In fact, well, how did things change uh, as far as being an Israeli after
1: that? There is a a a counter historical view on that point that yes those three arab nations did invade israel that's true but it's we haven't got time to go into it now but there's lots of historical documentation and declassified documents that have now become available in the last years that question the narrative that says that israel was actually under threat existentially but putting that issue aside for a minute israel won that war in six days like a remarkable I mean, not many wars end in six days. I mean, they're barely getting started, right? You have the Ukraine war a year and a half in, and it looks like it's going to drag on for God knows how long. So, but essentially, what Israel did after then, occupied East Jerusalem, the Gaza, West Bank, and the Golan Heights, which was next to, which was part of Syria. And it's now 56 years on. It's the longest occupation in modern times. And essentially, what has happened in very short summary is, a brutal military occupation of Palestinian territory, building huge amounts of Jewish settlements that only Jews can live in, discriminating against Palestinians because they're not Jewish. Israel essentially has created a Jewish supremacist state, both within Israel itself but also within Palestine. I see you want to jump in there, so please.
0: (laughs) No, know, uh, it, it, it's very interesting stuff for most listeners who haven't, you know, a real idea of, of what things are, are, are like. Um, bringing it forward to today, obviously, you've got the settler question of what, what a settler is and, and whatnot. Um, but I don't think it's an understatement uh, to say that you are suppose, not the best friend of the current Israeli government. And part who would why- be? <laughs> fair enough. Fair Some enough. people are. Some people uh, are. But but, uh... but what when it comes to light certainly, you know, it's an incredible piece of investigative journalism, the Palestine Laboratory. And that kind of brings us into you know the, the whole mm. premise of of you know why it's called the laboratory and what is going on now. And this is what you have uncovered. And and this is why I say you're you're probably party to some of the, the tactics uh, that you write about uh, that probably been used against you in some shape or form. But possibly, yeah, possibly, yeah.
1: yes. <laughs> I mean Look, the summary of the book, and I guess we'll go into that in more detail, is that essentially in those decades since Israel has started its occupation 56 years ago, Israel has developed huge amounts of tools and technologies to maintain that occupation. Now, what I mean by that is in the modern age, we're talking about drones, so-called smart walls, facial recognition technology, biometric um, tools, uh, intelligence gathering a range of things spyware you know hacking into people's phones mobile phones and that's been from the Israeli perspective incredibly successful the occupation is now arguably permanent there's no real international pressure to challenge it really i would argue um, occasionally you have statements of criticism from the Irish government from countries in Europe they're toothless utterly toothless Releasing a press release and expressing deep concern about what's happening in Palestine, we are long past the need for something far more than a freaking press release. But nonetheless, Israel finds itself as a state which has complete impunity. And what that means is that not just they can control Palestinians, but those tools and technologies that they use is now a massive export business. So a lot of other countries, and as I discover in the book, over 130 nations in the world, so essentially the majority of countries on the planet, have bought some form of Israeli technology, defence equipment, spyware, drones, whatever it may be, and they're buying it because it's been battle-tested in Palestine on Palestinians. This this is a key selling point. And, and we're talking about if you think of any repressive nation and government in the last half century, from uh, Chile under Pinochet to Saudi Arabia today to Rwanda during the genocide, I mean, literally the list goes on and on and on. Israel has either sold technology or tools to those regimes or they've provided training, advice based on what Israel claims is a successful counterinsurgency campaign against Palestinians in Palestine. So the laboratory that I reference in the book is that Palestine has become the ultimate laboratory, a permanently occupied population in Palestine who are, in Gaza at least, trapped in an open-air prison in the West Bank, not quite as restrictive but still essentially living under massive occupation, who have massively restricted freedom of movement, freedom of ability, freedom of speech, and the tools that Israel is using to maintain that occupation, the increasing brutalization of Palestinians that some listeners obviously will see, including just right now, you know, in the last week or so of a massive, when I say reinvasion of the West Bank town of Janine, I mean, Israel doesn't really leave those towns, but a massive increased militarization in that area huge destruction and yet again we have and when you write about this issue you kind of get used to this this process in the media israel does something invades attacks bombs or sometimes palestinians of course do so as well as resistance and the media reports as well as two equal sides you know israel does this and palestinians do this it's very complicated who knows what's really going on who are we to judge and then it goes back to a so-called status quo until the next flare-up in a week or in a month or six months and in fact a term that israel routinely uses they themselves use this term mowing the lawn now you can probably guess what that means it's a utterly disgusting comment but essentially this belief that every so often regularly we israel has to have to go into Gaza or the west bank to kind of mow the lawn take care of business attack palestinians cause carnage pull out until the next time the need to mow the lawn comes again which is regularly so The Palestine Laboratory for Israel is massively successful. It's now the 10th biggest arms dealer in the world. It sells weapons to pretty much anybody apart from a handful, Iran, uh, Syria, North Korea, probably a few others, but pretty much anyone. I mean, the arms industry obviously is amoral everywhere. I mean, the US obviously is the world's biggest arms dealer. It sells 40% of the world's weapons. and Obviously, there's UK and... Russia and other nations sell weapons, not just Israel, of course. But Israel has a ready-occupied population on its doorstep permanently, which gives them unbelievable experience in how to maintain that occupation, which they're now selling globally.
2: And uh, could you tell us a little bit about them selling or how it's been organised with Modi in India? Like you know, like they're taking kind of a leaf out of the Israeli book of yeah. how to Kashmir and everything like that, and the occupation mm. of of the Palestinians. That it's really come into to play now that they've become friends,
1: big friends. I mean, you know, it's a, a big part of the book does go into India because India is now the world's biggest nation. It's the world's biggest population. It has overtook China this year, according to the UN. and a half billion, give or take a few. And the world's biggest self-described democracy anyway. I would question whether it's that democratic, but certainly self-described democracy. And, of course, course, much of the West now, US, UK, Australia, is romancing India because they're not China. Now we're in this kind of new quasi-cold war between most of the US and China, Which I think many of us fear is only going to get worse, not better, in the coming years. India, of course, is not China, so therefore we're friends with India. And yes, you're absolutely right. A big part of the book is looking into this question of how India and Israel, which traditionally were not friends really during the Cold War, in general, India was much more closely aligned with the Soviets. And but in the last year, since 2014, when Modi, uh, Prime Minister Modi became leader, has a really ugly history of Hindu fundamentalism itself. he's a leader of a party which actively and openly talks about a Hindu fundamentalist agenda. I'm a friend of mine a few days ago who was saying to me in his view Hindu fundamentalism is the most um, most pernicious and ugly and concerning ideology of our age because India is so powerful now and growing in in power and what Israel and India have done is that there's two, Parts of that relationship. One, it's a defense relationship. So India buys heaps of defense equipment, weapons, spyware. And I feature in the book some people who have been spied on by Israeli surveillance technology that the Indian government has bought. But it's also an ideological alignment. Essentially, you have lots of Indian officials openly praising what Israel's doing in the West Bank talking about how they admire, I mean, they don't say they admire the occupation, but essentially that's what they're saying, that they want to do something similar, as you say, in Kashmir. So Kashmir is a Muslim-majority area. Their plan, Indian plan, is to bring huge numbers of Hindus from the south of India and settle the land, essentially, to copy, to mimic what Israel's doing. Now, I don't say in the book that India in inverted commas, needs Israel to do this. And India is going to do what India is going to do based on its own reasoning, ideology, et cetera. But that ideological alignment, I very much see similarly to Israel and apartheid South Africa decades ago, who were unbelievably close. Much of the world has forgotten this, but it's a really important part of history, which I talk about in the book, because that, again, was not just a defence relationship, which it was, But both nations deeply admired how the other were treating in South Africa the black population, who, of course, are under apartheid, and in Palestine how Israel was treating Palestinians, which was arguably then and now apartheid too. And it's interesting that right till the end of apartheid in 1994 when pretty much the entire world, the entire world had finally, finally said enough. You have a choice, South Africa. And, of course, they made the right choice. I mean, South Africa now is a deeply problematic society and apartheid arguably still exists in an economic form, but nonetheless apartheid ended in 1994. The friend that was with South Africa right to the end was Israel, right to the end. And that's important to understand and remember because, again, they saw them as a real bedfellow, And both nations were getting inspiration. So the Israeli prime minister, Ariel Sharon, I talk about this in the book, went to South Africa and was viewing the bantustans, the so-called self. I mean, South Africa would claim that they were sort of um, black townships that were controlled by the black population, which was nonsense. Essentially, they were uh, black townships under the control of the white government. And the Israelis said, we want to do something very similar in Palestine. Palestinian towns, Palestinian villages, with some kind of nominal Palestinian control, which has never really happened in any kind of serious way, with Israel with the strong hand above everything, which is exactly what they've done. That's what the West Bank occupation is. I mean, I lived in Palestine for years. I've been reporting on and off there for 20-odd years, and that's what it is. These are... Palestinian villages and cities and when you go there often you may not always see Israeli soldiers necessarily walking down the street although sometimes you do but you see a Palestinian population that doesn't have freedom of movement and freedom of speech and all those set of issues so the Palestine Laboratory for Israel of course they don't call it that that's what I'm calling it but what's what it is is unbelievably financially rewarding And I think also just finally on this point, and obviously India is a big part of that, is it also gives Israel a degree of like an insurance policy. But I think there are some in the Israeli government and Israeli elites who are aware that a number of a lot of the world doesn't like what it's doing. I mean, that's pretty obvious. They don't like it. I said before they don't really do much about it, but they're not a massive fan of the occupation. But if you sell weapons to so many people, you kind of become a pretty reliable friend. I mean, it's a transactional relationship, right? It's, I was going to say it's not really a friend, friend with benefits. I mean, I'm not sure there's much sex going on there, but there's, there's a relationship of sorts going on there. And I think Israel hopes with justification that those nations, most of the world basically, are less likely to criticise us if we are selling all this equipment that they need and that they want to repress their own population, India is obviously a key part of that. That, to me,
0: on a macro level, then, if, if you if you take the, the wide lens, is a case of the arms industry providing the funds for the public relations to sell the ideas to keep yes. the wars alive. You know, and you can take that America case in point and obviously here Israel case in point. Yeah. It's kind of frightening, really, isn't it? It's scary. I mean,
1: as as I sort of say in the book, the whole concept of battle-testing weapons is not solely happening in Palestine. After 9-11, the US battle-tested huge amounts of weapons in Iraq and Afghanistan, massive amounts of weapons. In fact, at the moment, the West, there was a piece in the Financial Times literally this week talking about the war in Ukraine being... A key site for american and western weapons to be trained to be tested so yes there was a hugely illegal um violent er russian invasion of ukraine i mean my view is the war should end tomorrow with a negotiated settlement but there doesn't seem to be much interest on well yeah i guess that's a separate issue but there doesn't seem a lot of interest on the western side who are mostly funding and arming ukraine to push for that settlement this is not by any means to excuse what Russia is doing. I think Russia's invasion is hideous and must must be opposed. But Ukraine has become a key site for battle-testing new weapons. So, as I said, the difference, though, is that in Israel's back, you know, in, in its neighbourhood, like you know, literally down the road, less than 30 kilometres from Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, less than that. So down the road, they're occupied Palestinians. People often maybe don't get that sense when they haven't been there. I think how is that, like, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan were far away from the US, right? Ukraine is far away from the US. It's even far away from where you guys are now in Ireland. I mean, it's closer than where, for me, but it's not down the road. It's in Europe, of course. And I'm guessing you guys maybe feel part of Europe. I guess that could be a separate conversation whether you see yourself as European or Irish, but that, that's maybe a separate conversation, but um,
2: it's, definitely it's, it's definitely Irish. Irish, European, yeah, Irish. Yeah, yeah. Irish, we, European, we, we, yeah. we
0: would fall in in with what Europe yeah. does and think we've become much yes. more Europeanized over yeah. the last twenty years. That's, that's yes, for sure.
2: with benefits, isn't it? You're yeah, Irish, exactly. with European. Yeah, we We've Like you know, the the ease of travel and everything like this. Mm. Definitely. And, you know, like we're about to go on holidays next week to Luxembourg and the fact that when we're there and we're landlocked, we'll be able to go into France, Germany, Belgium, right. wherever yeah. we like and, and you know, and, and travel with ease. So it is it's very, very difficult to comprehend what exactly that occupation is like. And it's only true, you know, journalists like yourselves or authors and um, documentaries and Bits and snippets on YouTube that I've uh, that I've watched over the last two weeks, you know, that I'm Mm. getting to feel a real sense of, oh, my God, these other people are, you know, having a terrible life. And that's so sad. And it's it's exactly how I would have felt for uh, the Jewish population and what would have happened in World War Two. This is horrendous. This is horrific. And now Mm. I'm watching it that they've become so full of hatred for the Palestinians that it's it's just so ingrained in the Israeli nation to have such hatred for the Palestinians. And, you know, what what I saw on one documentary was how the demolition of people's houses, their homes that their fathers have built. And these people like had come and, and lived here for and like been born in the 60s in these homes. And then overnight, they're literally thrown out on the streets with none of their possessions, none of their furniture, yep. and none of their clothes. And how? Where's the humanity in this? You know, and
0: well, the story is sold and it's and it sanitized. so that these people are, I in mean, the word, there is a, an Israeli word I can't remember now uh, for non humans. Um, it's also uh, mm. that they're so that they're all terrorists. Um, yes, absolutely. And- you know this thing so you know we often look okay what is a terrorist i mean closer to home we would have or our parents would have had to ask that question you know about what the ira was doing in, in northern yeah. ireland but again it always seems like the underdog or the the the, the you know the people that are oppressed they're all terrorists, terrorists if they try to resist <laughs> that's, yeah. that's absolutely really but, and they can't you know you can't fight for you, know, you are the voice for the for the the people that don't have one
1: and i mean of course 911 has made this discussion even more fraught because i mean the Palestinians, of course had nothing to do with (laughs) 9-11 i mentioned that because obviously the war on terror i use that term you know inverted commas i mean that's just the the shorthand for what all the crazy shit that's been gone going on for the last 20 plus years the so-called war on terror is that palestinians have been very easily framed as terrorists as a threat and therefore, when Israel fights its so-called war on terror itself, and I talk about this in the book, that, you know, when 9-11 happened in the US under Bush launched what's still really going on, a, a war on terror globally, Iraq, Afghanistan, drone attacks, etc., cetera, rendition, the playbook and the language was borrowed and taken from the Israelis. I mean, the Israelis have been saying and doing those things for decades. Not saying everything the US did was copied. It wasn't quite as black and white as that. But in general, it was copied. I mean, Israel wrote the playbook on the war on terror, it's their playbook. And again, when you have so much of the world supporting it, embracing it, wanting to buy into it, I mean, I say, I talk about in the last 50 years, there's so many examples of nations, particularly Latin and South America, parts of Africa in the 70s and 80s the most repressive regimes on the planet who were desperately saying publicly and privately, talking about, as I said, Pinochet with Chile, Guatemala in the 80s when they were literally committing genocide against the indigenous population, saying, Israel, come help us. Now, Israel wasn't killing killing people directly, but they were training and they were arming, they were working with death squads. Now, to me, as someone Jewish, I mean, I'm atheist and non-practicing, so I'm not I'm not going to, but still more culturally Jewish these days than anything else. I think this is the legacy of my people, so to speak, 75 years, roughly, after World War II, like this is the legacy working with and funding and arming and training, often regimes, by the way, that are openly anti-Semitic, going back to that point before. They were working, for example, in Argentina decades ago during the dictatorship there. That was an openly anti-Semitic, anti-Semitic regime. They were torturing and killing Jews, and they were housing and looking after Jews, after Nazis who'd escaped the Europe. And Israel's working with these people. Now, you could say... The US does this around the world. My eyes, have I've spent a lot of my career not just focusing on Israel. I've done a lot of work in Afghanistan and lots of other places. So I'm well aware that this uh, dark side, I guess, of humanity is not solely because you're not solely committed by Israel. I'm well aware of that, but I'm not American. And I mean, I'm not Israeli either, but I am Jewish. And to think that, thing to know that israel has been in the past and in the present behaving treating arming the worst regimes on the planet i don't really believe in karma particularly but if it does exist wow there is a lot coming
0: there is a lot coming you know and again money in my mind is behind just about all of this and i, I just to segue slightly <laughs> off off uh, topic, but into your your previous um, work on on uh, pills, fire, yes. and, and smoke. Uh, yeah. just again, like the the war on drugs is essentially about marginalizing, you know, further marginalizing the already Absolutely. marginalized. Yeah, uh, and again, it's money. It's it's monetized through the the prison system, which is privately owned now in, yep. in, in the US. Uh, and I guess this is the whole thing. So uh, if you know the whole <laughs> larger conspiracy question who really runs the world (laughs) totally but i would say with the drug war in the last five
1: or ten years there's been more positive change than at any time in the last half century the drug war still goes on it's brutal it's ugly i just wrote a book about it so i'm well aware of all that but there is a shift going on there is a growing movement to legalize cannabis around the world In in my country australia literally this month in july uh, it is now legal to medicinally supply by trained therapists psychedelic drugs to people who have PTSD and depression and various other issues. Now I'm not idealizing all that and there's going to be hiccups and problems and all that along the way. But there is a that, that, these are shifts that did not happen for literally half a century. So not to not to minimize the fact that fentanyl was killing. In 2022, in the US, I think the figure was 110,000 people. I mean, it is. It wasn't just fentanyls, opioids, but principally uh, fentanyl. I mean, those fingers are just incomprehensible to us. It's insane. I mean, those sort of figures, and that's even that. That's not even the full picture. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, fentanyl obviously is being taken by various people who can't get access to opioids or heroin. And they move on to fentanyl. Most of them probably don't want to kill themselves, but they get a drug, they get something in the mail, they buy something from a dealer, they don't really know what they're taking. It's often mixed with other drugs. Often now fentanyl is mixed with cocaine and other drugs. Uh, people don't know what they're snorting or injecting. So, all these problems, of course, until it's legal and regulated, which in my view, all drugs should be, you don't know what the hell you're taking. I don't say that. I mean, I think people should take whatever drugs they want or take no drugs, your choice. But while that, current system exists, we are, as you rightly say, I mean, it's a way to marginalize vast parts of the world are the people who are producing and making the drugs, So all the like, you know, I've looked a lot of the book in the in the cocaine, supply chain from mostly Colombia and elsewhere to the west i mean cocaine has never been more popular people are obsessed with cocaine and a lot of people are taking it it's never been cheaper i mean it's not quite the case in australia like that but in terms of the cost but but as a drug it is i mean the supply chain i mean could not be dirtier it is so ugly and i say that as said who's someone who thinks cocaine should be legal and regulated but The amount of people who are suffering, so much suffering for people in London or New York or Sydney or anywhere else to have their gram or two of Coke every weekend and not really thinking about that. And one thing I talk about in the book is this concept of kind of ethical drugs that we so much in the West now are obsessed with what are we eating, what are we wearing. I'm not saying in a bad way, thinking more about where our I guess lifestyle, so to speak, comes from. And yet there's not much thought about. So where do our drugs come from when drug use has never been higher? Like what why is there that separation? If you care about where your shoes come from or where your eggs, you know, are your are your you know, are the chickens properly treated before they give their eggs up? And I totally support that philosophy. I'm not against it by any means, but you're also not you, but one is taking Coke every week and don't think about that. Sorry. what? What is that disconnect? What is going on there? It's
0: Public crazy. relations. That's what it is. Public relations.
1: Public relations. And also maybe this weird sense that, well, eggs are not illegal and cocaine is. So I don't want to think too much about where my Coke comes from. I don't know. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's not, it must be incredibly lonely existence at times for you because obviously you're coming up with ideas you're, you're uncovering things that being a difficult job in itself then mm. putting the you know pen to paper so to speak uh, and and hoping to god there won't be well it's actually you know you actually probably do hope there's a big backlash because uh, that that highlights the problem perhaps yeah i mean it's interesting
1: i've obviously more and more now also make films which of course are collaborative So I've done a number of documentary films. I'm trying to do many more. And obviously that's not just me on my own. But the thing about, I guess, a journalist or writing the books I do is that when you start doing them, normally they take anywhere between two to five years. You're not writing it the whole time. You're researching, doing other things. You have a family, whatever it may be, that you think, well, I want to choose, in my case, I want to choose something that's not going to be out of date, that's not going to not be in the news cycle. I mean, when I chose to write about the drug war, I was pretty confident the drug war wasn't going to end. Hello, it's obviously evolving, which I think is a good thing. And with Palestine, was pretty confident Palestine wasn't going to be free by twenty twenty three, and shock horror, it's not. So, and also, as you say, you write a book and then you sort of hope to God that someone gives a shit, someone reads it, someone buys it, someone wants to talk to you about it. I mean, one of the things I often think about a lot these days, this is slightly not off the topic with Palestine, but in general is that we, all of us in the West, are so bombarded with information. There's so much white noise, so much white noise. How do you, how do any of us get above that? There's not, really, there's, not really, there's not really an answer to that in a way, I and mean, we all contribute in our own way and write books or do a podcast, whatever it is. And that's all great, and I'm obviously not against any of that because that's what I do and that's what you do. But there is a sense of I just feel more and more that people's, and this is probably about me as well, our attention span, I shouldn't say our, my, I'm not going to say you guys are the same, but I'm I guessing... Don't. It probably are, yeah, probably (laughs) is right. I mean, it's really difficult,
0: yeah,
1: it's difficult now. So, yeah, I mean, I've been really pleased. This book came out roughly a month ago in the US and the UK and Australia. I'm not sure, and it's the interest has just been off the chart. I've been just astounded, much more than I was expecting. I guess you hope for the best and expect not the worst, but expect. Yeah, my expectations were not massively high, not because I thought the book wasn't any good, but because you just think, oh, I was just going to get heartbroken. But I think for some people there is this real, there are not many other issues globally. I knew this before the book came out, but it's been, I guess, confirmed after its release that there are not many issues globally that get so much passion across countries as Palestine. There are a handful of others. I remember I was listening just a few days ago to an interview with the executive editor of the New York Times. I don't know him personally, but he was sort of saying, he was talking about the US, but the issues that generally have got people, readers, the most fired up, and I heard this, I've heard this for years, three issues in the US. In the US, US um, presidential politics, which kind of, under and across the US increasingly, it's just a divided, totally broken society in my view, and two other issues, abortion and Israel-Palestine. Mm. Now, obviously, abortion in some countries is less toxic than others, as in, you know, it's less controversial, so to speak. It's either, it's hopefully legal, and women access it if they need or want. And the end, right? Because mm. there's always going to be people who oppose it. Sure,
0: mm. I
1: say that because it just shows that there are some people who just, and in Palestine, is often the same. Yeah. I mean, on one level, that might be, might be bizarre. I mean, you know, abortion is actually a physical body that you know you are as a as a woman. Um, making a choice about, you know, a, a pregnancy. Israel-Palestine is really ideological. It's also emotional, I suppose, that people feel so connected to the issue or to one side or the other. But it's interesting how that, yeah, this editor is also saying, abortion in Israel-Palestine. I've heard that for other editors for years. It's so, and one thing, what's kind of weird like, I mean, I'm sure in Ireland there are other issues, like I'm sure in the last, you know, decades, obviously the troubles in your country,
0: every country has their own individual issues, of course. You yeah, know? but some things go away, just even like the, the abortion issue was pretty much resolved. Once, the, once we had the referendum, that's it, you know, it just disappeared off the And off. amazing
1: how that's happened in Ireland as a country with yeah, yeah. much better than me. The history with religiously in your country, that was, I mean, fantastic in my view, but Wow. And Australia yeah. is, look, I mean, Australia is generally, there is issues here about abortion access. And not, But in general, it doesn't have that kind of just toxicity that you see in the U.S. I mean, well, in the U.S., like on most issues, it just takes it to 11,
0: right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the thing about writing about issues that probably will still be around, you know, it's really quite pessimistic and I, look, I agree with you entirely. We've spoken about this in a couple of recent episodes as well, and one particularly about Russia and Ukraine. Mm. Uh, none of these problems are, are, are going away. And it does no. feel like there's a lot of stuff brewing for some significant change. Uh, and you know who knows where it's going to where it's going to lead but you know my own personal view like you said uh, us is a failed state it has yeah. no appetite for war and will not be the world's police for the foreseeable future so who is going to step into uh, that space and israel has the capability to be that player you know to to call to call the shots i mean as far as solution goes i mean like your your views on on what could and might happen as far as having a you know a, a, a a Palestinian state, um, is that people can get on similar to the way that things have been resolved in in Northern Ireland. Now, all the problems haven't gone away, but there's constant dialogue. You know, know, both sides are prepared to talk. Both sides are prepared to to work with each other. And for the most part, you can walk around Belfast and cross, you know, lines between Protestant and Catholic areas. You'll notice the difference Particularly just mm. in, in the buildings and murals on the wall and things like that. But you won't fear for your safety. you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, you know, like me, I was there recently, and as a as a Catholic man walking through the prize errands, absolutely fine. You know, there's no there's no problem. So that is a solution, but to actually try and make that happen in Israel, I mean, Israel's controls, right, and has been for many years by a very select few number of people. Right. You mean you mean within the Israeli government, you mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean one of the things that's been so I mean depressing but also remarkable is that a an initially small extremist minority within Israel the so-called settler movement the extremist sect decades ago that believed that Jews and only Jews had the right to settle the West Bank and build settlements and kick out Palestinians that was a minor tiny minority view and even now in 2023 not every Israeli Jew by any means supports those people. However, however, they've essentially, well, they've won. They being the settler movement. I mean, they've won, meaning you now have 700-odd thousand settlers in the West Bank. You have a government led by Netanyahu who is not even the most extreme there. He's actually a moderate compared to some of the other people in his government. Um, you have, you know, senior cabinet ministers in Israel these days who ad- advocate openly ethnic cleansing. And I think there is, and in some ways, the Israeli government's extremism is actually what makes more and more people globally sit up and say, hang on a minute, we're supposed to be Australian, American, British, Irish, we're supposed to be supporting those guys? We're supposedly on the side of people who want ethnic cleansing? Sorry, What? And I think, and you see this in public opinion polls in many nations, including the US, which obviously is still the most important nation in the world on this issue. And arguably, I'm not sure I entirely agree with you about not being the world's policeman. I'm not sure I agree with you on that. But nonetheless, I think they're going to, I think they're a, a lumbering giant that's going to go down in flames, but they could, they could be going down for the next hundred years. <laughs> anyway, but, um, I think it's making a lot of people around the world far more skeptical of what Israel's is doing. I mean, to me, the outcome that's most just would be a one state solution, meaning it's a democratic state where all citizens can live equally. And Jew, Christian, Muslim, atheist, whatever you may be, there needs to be some kind of truth and reconciliation akin to what happened in South Africa after apartheid. That was not a perfect system. There were lots of problems. But any Israeli Jew that I know that believes in the end of the conflict will say, without outside pressure, this is never going to end. There's simply not enough Israeli Jews. I mean, obviously, a lot of Palestinians, but Israeli Jews are the ones who have the power to end this. You know, white South Africans didn't wake up one day in 94 and go, gee, this apartheid's pretty bad. No, of course. I mean, obviously there were some whites who opposed it for the whole, for decades and, you know, bless them for doing that, very brave. But the vast majority either accepted it or kept their head down. It was only with outside pressure, only with outside pressure. And, you know, even in the last, this year, for example, in America, for the first time ever, there were the majority of Democratic voters in a study were more sympathetic to Palestinians and Israelis for the first time ever. Now, obviously, a poll never asks why that view has shifted, but you can be pretty confident to suggest it was partly because of the Israeli government. It's an extremist government. It turns people off. Now, the question is where that shift, how does that translate into politics? How does that put pressure on The Democratic Party or a Joe Biden, or if the Republicans win next year, whether it's Trump or some other lunatic, then I mean, the Republicans are a lost cause on pretty much anything. Now, I don't say that as supportive of the Democrats. (laughs) I think the Democrats on most issues are pretty horrible. But there is a lot more debate and discussion within the Democratic Party on, say, Palestine than there is in the Republicans, where essentially, I mean, Israel could commit ethnic cleansing tomorrow in a mass way, and the Republicans would say, sorry, you haven't gone far enough. Like that that's the level. I mean, the Republicans have, have, in my view at least, and I'm obviously not unique in saying this, have gone scarily, scarily extreme. I mean, you know, the world's most the world's most powerful nation with one of the two biggest political parties in that country, with the key candidate is Donald Trump who in a second term would be a very, very dangerous, angry man. Yeah, it's a pretty scary
0: prospect. I'm hoping, of course, he won't win. But only if... if, Good news stories, though. Um, America was constantly in the news as a result of it. Uh, not not so much with Joe Biden, eh? Uh, not 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 so much with the Democrats. Um, but oh, it's, it's 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 been incredible, Anthony. Like I, there's a load more. You know, we could go back through all your books uh, and all your writing. Um, and but it it sounds. I don't know if you can pick it up on the mic. There's a storm brewing uh, outside uh, our little yes. container. You can hear it rattling off the roof. Um, but I do hope that. Your book has created enough of a storm, um, that a, it funds you to do more work uh, like this, and b, that it actually gets uh the people who need to be talking about it talking a little bit more. But I suspect you've done a good thing, uh, and I suspect you've been largely well received. Uh, and the uh, only thing is, you may not be able to get into Israel anytime soon if you want to visit. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Well, thank you so much for having me though, guys. It's been really great. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. Really, really, glad we can make this happen anyway. Yeah,
2: pleasure's been ours. Yeah. You know, it's a fantastic thank listening to you. <laughs> I, I, I have one more question, if that's all right. Oh, I know okay. where it's yeah. yeah. There recently in April, there was massive protests um, in Israel where an, a lot of the Israeli people came out against yeah. the politicians for wanting to change the judicial law over, over this. But for the first time ever, I heard you say about um, how the people then were able to go, actually, our democracy is being threatened here and this is something that... Um, the Palestinians have never had. Like the other thing we never touched on was Hamas. And where are they now? Because like something else I heard you say was about there doesn't seem to be any political rule um, or ministers in Palestine or government like in Palestine now. So what's all happened there?
1: Uh, Well, the first, just to answer your first question. So, yes, there have been protests for, they're still going on, actually. They started very soon after Netanyahu formed government again in late 22, 2022. I mean, the summary of it is, yes, there's been huge protests, the biggest ever in Israel's history. But to me, I'm a bit more sceptical about what they signify. The numbers on the street have been amazing, but it's important to remember a few things. One, there's basically been no Palestinians marching. And there's a reason for that because most of the Israeli Jews who are say we want to save and maintain and strengthen Jewish democracy and Palestinians say sorry w- how does that work for me I'm not saying every Palestinian has that same view of course they don't but there are virtually no Palestinians marching and the Israeli Jews who are against the occupation which is sadly a tiny minority who are actually protesting are often shunned by the majority of Israeli Jews protesting I oh, mean, not the occupation. We'll deal with that later. No, no, no. You can't deal with it later. Like it's 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 an existential issue. Like the the occupation is what defines your lack of democracy. You can't occupy five million plus Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza and somehow think it's just a inconvenience. I mean, it's central to this whole issue. In terms of Palestinian policies, look, there are Hamas controls Gaza. The Palestinian Authority controls the West Bank nominally. But they're both, I mean, what's the best way? I mean, they're obviously both very different, but you could say ineffective, corrupt, don't really represent many Palestinians, many young Palestinians, particularly disillusioned with that. And it's important to remember that the Palestinian Authority, which, as I said, nominally controls the West Bank, is backed, funded, and armed by Israel and the West. So the whole concept of the palestinian authority which was founded in the 90s was to it wasn't of course said this way but this is what it's become it was a way for israel to outsource the occupation the palestinian leadership so to speak police force is basically maintaining the occupation there's no political path to liberation i mean here we are you know decades on after it was established and the Palestinian Authority is ruled by a man in his late 80s who is corrupt, useless, and ineffective. And which is exactly what the West and Israel wants. Like, as I often say in various other contexts around the world, the West doesn't want democracy in most places. Democracy is unpredictable. A dictatorship is much preferred because if you have a thug in place, you know what he or she is going to do. Normally a he, sometimes a she. You know what they're going to do probably i mean sometimes they go rogue of course but in general and you know you know what they're going to do a democracy well god knows what who's what are people going to vote for who are they going to vote i mean it's all a bit unpredictable um which is why it's very rare for western states to actually back real democratic change in states like the middle east including in palestine so like many palestinian friends of mine will regularly say that they're they, you know, they don't vote for the Palestinian Authority or Hamas. And by the way, there haven't been elections for years anyway. So it's a dictatorship, sadly. And look, there's no doubt that the Palestinian Palestinians should and I'd love them to have a viable, active political leadership. But ultimately, it's I mean, yeah, it's unbelievably hard to organize that when you have a mass surveillance state controlled by israel to organize to protest um but what i do know is the Palestinian authority at least is increasingly regarded with the contempt that it deserves by palestinians we yet to still see what will replace it and that'll come
2: Bob, thank you yeah. and a final just a, uh, another little one is that uh, you are uh, working on uh, films which i love i love watching like uh yeah stuff like this i find it a lot easier than i i read five pages and i'm unconscious well i'm trying to get a
1: film version up of i'm trying to do a trying to get a film version up of this of the palestine book which is not happening yet but that's the worst it's yeah obviously doing films is oh it's complicated and it's expensive and it takes time and you got to find people who are willing to fund it and people who are politically brave and not impossible but it just yeah, takes time. difficult. Yeah.
2: Is there is there any um, films out there that you could recommend that w- are really good viewing for now? Like you know
1: about Palestine, you mean?
2: Yeah, yeah, please. Well,
1: the film that comes to mind, which I actually just recommended to a friend, it's very short. On Netflix, I guess most people have Netflix subscriptions these days. There's a short film called The Promise. The it's Promise. very short, so 20 yeah. minutes. It's made by Palestinians. It's uh, it got a lot of acclaim. If you Google it, you'll find lots of stuff about it. essentially just gives a it's uh, by palestinians about a it's 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 not a documentary it's it's a it's a it's a um story it's fiction but based on fact basically about what the occupation means practically for Palestine. it's unbelievably moving and enraging and i'd recommend it's like 20 minutes half an hour it's very short it's great
2: i just started watching uh, a 3000 nights I got about twenty minutes in, but then fell asleep. So I have to go Still back asleep. again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Story of my life, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, burning a candle at both <laughs> ends. You know what I mean? I know the so, feeling. But uh, three thousand yeah. nights, um, horrific. You know what I mean? Already yeah. the, the intro to it, like you know. So, um, yeah.
0: Well, yeah. Fantastic. Okay. Well, listen, we we'll let we we'll let you go with that. You've been very generous with your time. Uh, it's probably time thank for you guys. Your, uh, it's bedtime yes. for you. So uh, yeah. So uh, no yeah, sweet dreams. Thank totally. you so much, guys. guys. Righty fun, geez, when you get going,
2: you can't <laughs> stop. <laughs> I know I was just nervous the last time. It's just better. Better. But, but you know what? I think it's outside here in the container feeling like, you know. You
0: think with the rain lashing down? Well, yeah, it's cozy. Yeah, it's, it's cozy. Yeah. There yeah. is something
2: romantic about the rain lashing down, isn't it?
0: That's true. That's true. On a tin roof. <laughs> can a tin roof. <laughs> yeah. Um right, thanks listeners. Uh, really informative. Really enjoyed that. Uh, the book is The Palestine Laboratory. The author is Anthony Lowenstein. Check out his other books as well and we will catch you again next week bye bye guys i would like to take just a moment to thank all the historian followers for your support during the first five months of the show both myself and neil are delighted that so many of you are enjoying what we do here we plan to continue and expand our efforts into the future as you can probably appreciate it does cost to produce the show and we have been funding this ourselves there is a link within the episode where you can make a one-time one euro enjoyment donation and we'd very much welcome uh, any donations at all in fact we will be offering a paid subscription tier more on that later and anyhow if uh, you don't have it don't worry keep tuning in we'll be here